welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Kelly Earhart, co-founder of Project Vesta, for a discussion that moves our focus to a natural yet permanent capturing of carbon. When we think about nature-based solutions, we're usually talking about carbon that cycles pretty quickly. Through the growth and decay of organic life, carbon is a building block that's frequently on the move. It could be days, decades or hundreds of years, but the carbon will be relatively active in its continual journeys from the atmosphere to the earth and back round and round. When we take a holistic view, we recognise, of course, that the mobility of this isn't in any way a concern. So long as we're deepening soils and regenerating ecosystems and biodiversity, then more carbon will be stored down here at any given moment, and it'll be offering all kinds of essential benefits besides. But with such an excess of emissions up in the atmosphere, there are all manner of approaches being explored for drawing down large quantities of CO2 to be locked up and considered stored down here permanently. These methods are often very technical, industrial or expensive. But Kelly's here to introduce us to coastal carbon capture, a means to accelerate the Earth's ancient natural process of rock weathering, utilising the power of the oceans. Now, this natural process takes millions of years, and they're reducing it to just decades with an approach that's also surprisingly simple and cost-effective. So it's easy to imagine how impactful this could be. And I was delighted for the opportunity to speak with Kelly to get an overview of this project, its science, its methods and ambitions. And like all nature-based approaches, the benefits can web outwards. So we also discuss how their carbon capture solution is countering ocean acidification and protecting vulnerable shorelines alongside. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing over on the website, wearecarbon.earth, or find us on Instagram, at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, We're here to discuss the possibilities of coastal carbon capture, which sounds really very fascinating. And before we get stuck in with all of that, could you maybe give a brief introduction to yourself and also the work that's behind this project? Sure. So I'm Kelly Earhart. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm a co-founder of Project Vesta. My background originally was in biology, but that's been applied through entrepreneurship through my career. So I've started a couple different companies in the climate and sustainability space, as well as a few nonprofit endeavors. And all of my work comes from lifelong love of the natural world. Um, I kind of grew up between the suburbs and rural middle America and saw the difference of impact that humans could have on the natural world and how humans could be actually a net positive to nature, kind of apex stewards instead of apex predators. And my work has really focused on climate because I see climate as truly our our most existential threat as it, it, it touches everything. It allows us to see the world as the whole of holes that it is. Uh, and so Project Vesta, we started 
after I had been doing a lot of kind of independent indexing of different climate solutions and met my co-founders. And we had both found uh, what's called enhanced weathering. It's known as enhanced weathering in academic literature as this solution to climate change that seemed to hold so much promise. It's cited in every IPCC report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, every IPCC report that states how we will avoid getting to 1.5 degrees of warming has these charts that they make of the different climate solutions that will be necessary to keep us in that safe zone. And enhanced weathering is always this large chunk of how we get there. Yet at the time, there was no company that existed to try and bring enhanced weathering out of the lab and out of kind of theoretical science into real world deployment for, for true climate impact. So we started Project Vesta as a group of individuals that wanted to see if we could take the 30 years of lab-based research that existed in the field of what's called coastal enhanced weathering and bring it into the real world for testing and viability demonstrations so that we could see if it would have real planetary scale impact. What really interests me about this is that it's looking at the long-term carbon cycle because so much when we come from a point of view of looking after nature and working with nature to help support the climate is looking at the more sort of frequently cycled carbon that's down here um, within the biosphere. This is looking at the long-term carbon cycle, which actually can take hundreds of millions of years in its natural process to move carbon from the atmosphere down into the earth and sort of background into these very, um, uh, very slow processes. So before we talk about how you're impacting that, which in itself, um, you know, strikes up so many questions how that could be possible. Could you give us a little sort of um, brief picture and understanding of the cycle itself from its natural point of view? Sure. So as you mentioned, usually when we think about removing carbon dioxide through natural processes, most people think of things that are like tree planting or growing food and doing regenerative agriculture. These things are incredibly important and support biodiversity and all of the cascading benefits that come from that biodiversity increase. However, they're working with the short-term carbon cycle, as you mentioned. So uh, trees and organic things absorb carbon dioxide as they grow, and then they re-release it as they die. And what we're working with is, uh, is the long-term carbon cycle. So the long-term carbon cycle is actually what's responsible for moving the majority of carbon dioxide on Earth through the cycles of, of balance. And so that process looks like atmospheric carbon dioxide moving from the atmosphere into rocks over millions of years. And this process is partially why Earth doesn't look and feel like Venus. Uh, so this, this process really helps to regulate global climate cycles. I think it's also important to acknowledge the role of the oceans in storing atmospheric carbon dioxide. So the oceans have also been naturally removing carbon dioxide for billions of years and storing it as rock through natural chemical processes that occur with minerals. And so at Project Vesta, what we intend to do is kind of give the oceans a helping hand to help speed that process up and begin to address this massive problem of uh, excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So this is a channel of the 
carbon dioxide, so it starts in the atmosphere, it's absorbed into the ocean itself, and then from the water makes its way down to the bottom of the ocean and into the rocks. So the process itself happens by carbon dioxide and water interacting with silicate minerals or volcanic minerals. And when that happens, it catalyzes a natural chemical reaction where carbon dioxide transforms into bicarbonate. And as it moves through water waves, waves, so you can imagine it moving through rivers and streams, once it reaches the ocean, that bicarbonate is fixed in the ocean. And at that point, once it gets to the ocean, it either turns into a calcium carbonate or, a, or stays as bicarbonate. If it's a calcium carbonate, it'll be used by marine organisms to build their skeletons and shells. And then as bicarbonate, it may just settle, uh, you know, eventually turning into rock back on the seafloor. Um, and of course, that's skipping a number of steps and there's more complexity. But for the purposes of, of our talk right now, we'll kind of leave it at that. But that's generally how the, the long term carbon cycle works with silicate minerals to um, do this, this process, the, the long-term carbonate silicate cycle. Fantastic. So this is something that has basically a natural process on Earth that takes, as we've mentioned, millions of years, maybe hundreds of millions of years. So that's a significant length of time. And the way that you're sort of coming into this is that you're suggesting that we can speed that up. Um, that's right. And that is how we will um, support the climate by capturing through this natural process, but by speeding that up. So to speed that up, OK, we've got hundreds of millions of years. So if we sped that up a little bit, it would still be pretty insignificant to us in terms of the change. So how, how fast can you make it and how is that actually possible that that could be um, impactful for us in our near future? It sounds fantastic but also fantastically far-fetched <laughs> on the surface so how 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 could that be possible so the the reason that this process is so slow is because most of these minerals are locked under layers of rock and so in many ways what we're trying to do is kind of increase the surface area of the earth's mantle so i'll zoom out for a second and maybe touch on a couple other components of how this process works so I mentioned that we're really working with the power of the oceans and harnessing the free energy of the oceans to speed up the process to a human relevant time scale. It's important to acknowledge that the trillion extra tons or so of carbon dioxide that we have in the atmosphere isn't just warming the planet. It's also made our oceans more acidic and very fast. So for any of the listeners who have spent time in the ocean, I'm sure you've seen that the corals are bleaching, that fish populations are dwindling in many areas, and you've probably seen changes to the shorelines that you've visited throughout your life. Uh, and, you know, ocean acidification is bringing marine ecosystems to the brink of collapse, which is a huge threat to the world. Billions of people around the world are relying on fish as a key source of protein. And of course, that's at risk. And so at Project Vesta, we're making the link between carbon dioxide and ocean acidification by kind of doing what I was mentioning earlier is, is looking to how we can partner with nature to actually neutralize the extra acidity in the oceans which can help them naturally remove carbon dioxide as they've been doing for billions of years, as we just laid out. And so what we're doing is we're taking a natural abundant volcanic mineral 
called olivine. As I mentioned, pretty much all volcanic minerals or silicate minerals perform this process of helping to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and move it into rocks. But olivine happens to be one of the most efficient minerals at performing this process. So we take olivine and we grind it up into a sand, something that we call carbon removing sand. And then we take this sand to the ocean where once it interacts with wave energy, tides and biotic processes, it dissolves with the help of, of those processes. And as it dissolves, olivine is, is an alkaline mineral. So it makes the ocean, olivine creates an alkaline reaction. So it makes the ocean less acidic because we're, we're having the, uh, the addition of bicarbonate into the ocean, which you can kind of think of as an antacid for the ocean. Um, it's basically baking soda, right? So we're making the oceans less acidic, which removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere permanently for millions of years, all by just helping to increase the ocean's ability to safely store carbon dioxide with this ground up mineral. And the key here is that, you know, as I mentioned, we're increasing the surface area of the earth. So right now it would otherwise be trapped under the earth um, and we're making it possible for it to interact more, more quickly with the natural environment. Um, there are olivine sand beaches around the world, so this isn't something that nature has never done before. One of the most famous olivine sand beaches is found in Hawaii. It's called Papakalea Beach. It's a gorgeous olivine sand beach with a rich, diverse ecosystem all around it that people enjoy on a daily basis. And we're studying that beach, actually, to understand it as a natural analog for the process that we're intending to do. That's beautiful, because what you're talking about is such a grand potential in the scale of the project. But actually, everything you've just said sort of highlights how it's natural. And that, that doesn't tend to go hand in hand. Often when we try to accelerate things and we try to really scale them up, we're, we're doing um, steps that are unpredictable and untested and changing the world in ways that may have outcomes that we can't predict. So the technology here is simple enough. I know that you're skirting over the science in a way so we can all absorb it, but it is simple enough for us to wrap our minds around and to wrap our minds around in a way that we can um, see that actually, yeah, that you, you are literally, like you've said, you're helping nature, you're supporting nature in something that she already does. And uh, I think that's, yeah, th that shows huge potential. That's right. And, you know, you touched on unintended consequences. And I think that that is so important to talk about. And Project VESTA is really a science-first, research-first organization. So we started in 2019 as a nonprofit um, organization working to advance the science of coastal carbon capture. And we are rigorously doing lab experiments, studying these natural analog beaches, and planning some of the first field trials to, to test this solution. So what we're, what we're trying to ensure is that we know that th this is, you know, safe at local levels, uh, especially when we monitor these natural these natural beaches. And we've been doing a number of laboratory experiments to better characterize the ecological safety of doing this at scale. So far, we've received really positive preliminary results. All of our tests are being done to 
the EPA standards, which is an environmental regulatory agency in the United States. And we've received really positive results in all of those experiments, but we're being slow. We have a very measured rollout because we want to ensure ecological safety at every step of the way. So we, we're really trying to characterize, is this safe for planetary scale climate impact? And again, we're hopeful that it will be in that there are natural analogs for this happening around the world, but that's exactly why we are doing the science that we are and we're committed to the rigor that we are is so that we can really have a good sense of that. Uh, our next step, once, once, we're, uh, once we have permits in place, our next step is to deploy the very first small scale field pilots of coastal carbon capture, where we'll introduce olivine sand to coastal areas and measure to see if there are any changes in the ecology and also measure so that we can begin developing a methodology and a protocol for which we can measure carbon removal in the ocean ecosystem. And so that's something that actually doesn't exist right now. We, we as a kind of scientific community don't have a, a methodology for how we measure what's called ocean alkalinity enhancement, which is that alkalinity change that drives carbon removal in the ocean. And so we're really working hard to develop a, a protocol and a technology that can measure it so that once we have all of our questions answered in regard to the science and assuming they all, uh, you know, return positive results, we can scale this by, you know, selling carbon credits on the basis of it and supporting uh, coastal communities in their, in their resilience plans. Yeah, wonderful. With regards to the olivine beaches that are natural, are they found across the globe or are they quite specific in their locations? They are found around the world. I'd say the most well-known ones, there's Papakalea Beach in Hawaii and there's a beach in Guam and a beach in the Philippines as well, where I think those are probably the most well-known and studied. However, there's olivine reserves all around the world. So olivine is found on every continent. Uh, there's more than a trillion tons of it at the near surface. It actually makes up more than 50% of the Earth's mantle. So it's a very abundant mineral. Yes. Wow. That's uh, it's actually something I've not heard of um, prior to sort of coming across this project, the actual um, mineral itself, the olivine. Do we have other uses for it? Yeah, right now, olivine is used um, really as an industrial refractant mineral. So it is uh, mined and, and used for kind of industrial processes um, because it in some ways kind of acts similarly to quartz, but it has a little bit more magnesium. Okay. So like you've already mentioned that there are other um, volcanic mineral, minerals that could replace this, but this is the most efficient or at least the one that you've come across that's the most efficient and... Um, so it's very abundant. And the idea here is that you're getting permission to expand this on particular beaches. Is there a um, scope to use it globally, do you feel? Or do you think there's going to be uh, very specific locations and conditions that are required? Yeah, we definitely hope to scale this to be a global solution. So there's a couple of ways that will bring coastal carbon capture into the world. One way is through kind of deploying coastal carbon capture for the pure carbon removal, ocean deacidification benefits, and we'll you know, sell carbon credits on the basis of that. 
However, the other way that we're bringing coastal carbon capture into the world is actually in partnership with coastal communities that are experiencing climate change first and worst, experiencing erosion and sea level rise before you know many others. So this is coastal communities around the world, island nations. And right now there's a industry that exists that is growing by the day called coastal, coastal nourishment. Uh, or beach replenishment, where foreign sand is brought in to rep- replenish coastlines. And Project Vesta is partnering with coastal communities and coastal engineers to see if we can replace a portion of the sand that's used for these resilience measures with olivine sand to turn these activities that are currently quite carbon emitting into carbon negative activities that sort of tr- treat both the root cause and the symptoms of climate change in one. So coastal nourishment is a a big way that we hope to bring this into the world. And we're in process of partnering with different individuals, regulators, government stakeholders to see where coastal carbon capture can be brought first. So we have a, a series of sites where we hope to deploy some of the first field pilots. Uh, in the United States and around the world. So we have a site in the Northern Caribbean that we've completed baseline sampling for and we're in the permit approval process for. We hope to be able to um, do a small scale deployment there. And then a few sites in the United States, a few sites in Europe that we're exploring, in India, and a few others that are in earlier stages of kind of the regulatory process with stakeholder engagement. Uh, but absolutely, we, we do hope that this can be a global solution. And I think it's important to note that when we're talking about scaled climate impact, you know, it we have to think about what the consequences are of, of true planetary scale impact. And luckily coastal carbon capture is the type of solution that pr- can provide permanent carbon removal without competing for arable land or fresh water. And what we've calculated is that it would actually only take a quarter of a percent of our shelf seas. So shelf seas, for anyone who is familiar, uh, is the the continental shelf that basically exists in, in around our continents in the ocean. So only a quarter of a percent of those shelf seas would need to have olivine introduced in order for us to remove a billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. So very scalable, um, and we're really hopeful for the the initial or the ultimate planetary impact. Yeah. So if we just go to those figures, a little, look at those in a little bit more detail, a billion tons of carbon removal per year. That that sounds enormous. And I don't know how that compares to uh, other projects and other ambitions that are, um, that are going on out there. But in terms of saying this is in addition to because it doesn't compete for land and resources, that, yeah. that sounds incredibly um just very much optimistic and that is a quarter of a percentage of the available um shelf seas yeah. shelf seas as you turn yeah um so that it, it sounds um it sounds enormous in terms of uh, the possibilities with this um do we have enough olivine you say that it's 
a half of um, the Earth's mantle, is that accessible um, without it actually becoming a negative for all of the transportation and um, mining? Yeah, there, there definitely is enough olivine. And I think, you know, of course, supply chain capacity will need to be built out um, to get the olivine because it's not mined at multi-billion ton scale. But you said it really well. Um, it's not going to be one solution where we need all solutions to work all together at once, including other natural solutions that can help us increase biodiversity and build more resilience into the world. Um, and again, we have to, we have to think about the different solutions that can scale in different ways. And yes, there is more than enough olivine. So 1 billion tons per year is a lot. Uh, and we're talking about living in a world today where we need to remove roughly 15 to 18 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere per, per year. So this solution is going to have to work in concert with a number of other solutions um, to bring this uh, true impact um, into the world. Now, the point about mining and shipping infrastructure, I actually think is one of the more elegant parts to uh, coastal carbon capture because we don't actually need any new technology. We can work with the efficiencies of these massive industries that we've built, the shipping and the mining industries to bring it to scale. So work with those efficiencies that have historically caused harm and been extractive and harmful to the planet and actually use them to rise to the challenge to preserve our planet. And I think, I think that that in itself is a really fantastic story and act of sort of Buckminster Fuller said it best that we can turn our weaponry into livingry. And certainly many technologies that have existed before were used originally as weapons and then became things that catalyzed life. And uh, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that as we bring, you know, olivine into the world in these larger ways. Um, the other the other piece to that is kind of how we think about, or what I heard through your question, was how we think about the impacts of mining and shipping and what kinds of impacts they may have on the overall carbon removal process. And it turns out that even when we bake in the impacts of mining and shipping and all of this, the process is still incredibly efficient. Um, so our process is roughly 97% efficient, which means that for every 100 tons of carbon dioxide that we remove from the atmosphere, we only emit three tons through that process of mining, milling, shipping. Um, so when we're talking about efficiency and, and especially when we compare to other permanent carbon dioxide removal solutions, and again, permanence is, is quite important because if we just re-emit the carbon back into the atmosphere in a few years, we're kind of just kicking the can down the road. When we compare uh, the efficiency to other permanent removal solutions, it is, it, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient. So we're really optimistic about that as well. Yeah, and I actually think it's really beautiful. I agree with you there, where we can turn what is potentially um, the negative, the enemy, the weapon into a big part of the solution, just encompass every opportunity and every availability that we've got, um, rather than shunning it and, and saying, you know, that's that's the problem, let's close the door. Um, so that, that I think is, um, yeah, 
it makes an awful lot of sense. And I suppose there there has to be, in addition to the um, drawing down of the carbon through the olivine itself into into the rocks, there has to be an acknowledgement here that it's also supporting the more organic cycling of carbon. And that must be difficult to quantify and measure alongside. But that if this has got the ability to take on ocean acidification as well, then the, the potential there is that it's actually supporting the organic movement of carbon. And that, if that is not taken into account, which of course it isn't in a more technological carbon capture solution, there isn't going to be that added benefit. In terms of that, how how impactful? If, if you hit the target of a billion tons of carbon, how much of an impact would that scale of operation have, do you think, upon the acidification reversal? It's hard to say just exactly because the effects will be mostly local, right? And so one of our, our components of our research program is to measure the effects of alkalinity e- increase on different marine ecosystems and specifically to some of our most sensitive um, you know, organisms like seagrasses and corals. So we're beginning studies this year uh, to analyze the, the impacts of alkalinity increase with, with olivine sand on coral health and growth and seagrass health and growth. Because as you mentioned, you know, corals, I believe, um, are only 2% of our oceans, but they hold 20%, 25% or so of the biodiversity of all of the oceans. So we're talking about bastions of life that are really important to conserve. And seagrasses as well are, are sort of these nurseries for, for life in the oceans. And so if there are ways that we can support the health of that, we absolutely want to. So we're studying that closely right now to be able to really get a good sense of what that will look like at scale. Yeah, so I, I suppose it really does depend upon proximity and how how close that potential for a coral um, and a seagrass kind of situation to establish, to grow, to flourish, how close does that have to be to the coastline um, that's being impacted by the olivine? So as you've already said, in terms of carbon capture, there is a lot of potentials out there that it's difficult to sort of say, yes, this is holding it for the long term. It may re-release um, and therefore the ambition itself to, to bring down the atmospheric carbon, um, it, it may not be impacting that in the long term in the way that we want. Do you, f- um, in terms of as far as the project has progressed, is is it fairly certain that this is holding it and re-establishing that same natural process that it would through the long-term cycle is it definitely staying down there it's it, it's recreating that it's not um just kind of you know absorbing into the minerals and then somewhere because we've we've done so much of this it's going to sort of come back out and it sounds kind of crazy but that you know I'm just my mind's just kind of ticking over it thinking um you know is that possible 
luckily that is one of the things that we we know quite certainly you know geochemically we understand the the process of mineral dissolution in the oceans and so there really isn't uh, any scientific question around the permanence of carbon capture using olivine so we know that it will you know it will stay in the ocean fixed as bicarbonate uh, at the very least fixed as bicarbonate for thousands, tens of thousands of years at the least. Um, and we're working to build models that that can show exactly how how long. However, um, you know, we we understand geochemically there's there's really no question in the scientific community that when olivine performs this process, it sequesters and stores carbon dioxide for tens of thousands of years in the ocean. I think the only way that it would be possible for it to be re-released would be if there were a massive ocean warming event that humans likely wouldn't survive. Uh, we're, we're talking about many, many Celsius degrees uh, or a number of, of degrees Celsius rise in temperature in the ocean. That would mean cascading effects for that to be true would, would it would not be a livable world. So um, that's all to say, yes, it's, uh, it's permanent. Fantastic. I think one of the biggest topics that keeps coming back to my mind is that the ambition for this project is so huge, that scale and that impact on the um, environment itself, on the biodiversity, on the ecosystems. This side of it, you have made a really clear point that it is very very important to the project to do this one step at a time to understand what that impact is going to be um do you in that process obviously the biggest concern is any negative impact but have you come across positive ones um for the coastal um ecosystems themselves rather than the in the ocean but actually on the land yeah so i think that there's of course the coastal resilience component where this can be used as a mineral uh, replacement for coastal nourishment and so that you know people's homes can be resilient to sea level rise and erosion that's that's a big impact and then of course any intervention that we make as humans in the natural world has impacts on all creatures and uh, on the other humans that live in the natural world. And something that we think about a lot at Project Vesta is the fact that, you know, the, the island nations of the world are some of the people that are experiencing climate change first and worst, and they did not contribute to the problem in the ways that the Western, you know, developed world has. And in many cases, you know, this, this solution may work best in some of these warm tropical places. And so what we're committed to is developing frameworks for stakeholder engagement and, you know, community engagement so that we can ensure that any local stakeholders are fully integrated into the process of, you know, decision making and having their opinions be heard as we contemplate doing projects in these places. So we've begun to collaborate on what's called the uh, ethical code of conduct for ocean carbon dioxide removal. There was a framework um put together um, with the Aspen Institute that was published in December. And that's a great kind of starting point that, that we were collaborative on. I think it's really important that as companies and organizations think about how they can bring these solutions into the world, we also think about the 
environmental justice of uh, you know the, the human experience of, of what it is to be impacted by climate change and and how people can be properly sort of um, supported and honored in that. And so Project Vesta also is committed to donating a percentage of our profits to uh, local communities where we eventually will will be deploying. And we're really excited to develop a pretty robust kind of community engagement framework um, for, for our work. Yeah. Wonderful. That sounds, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's very nice to hear that you're sort of integrating that into the, into the plan because it really is, it's about how, how it all combines and what we've taken from these communities. Like you say, it's so detached from where the damage has come from and where that impact is, is being made. So there, that, that's a very wonderful, um, way to be moving forward with it. Yeah. And, you know, you said uh, you've said a couple of times this is such an ambitious project and it is. Um, and I think we as a species, you know, this is a huge opportunity. This is the biggest opportunity that humanity has to rise to the challenge of you know, preserving our planet and, and creating a safe, a safe place for our future generations to live. Uh, a friend of mine says a friend of mine, Amanda Joy Ravenhill, she's she's the executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. And, and she says, pessimism is a luxury for a much less urgent time. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think the, what we've seen in the climate and environmental space in the last year or two, especially in the wake of COVID, when I think a lot of people turned their their themselves around and said, what do I care about and how do I give to what I care about? So many people are are really waking up to the critical nature of, of climate change. And that's heartening. Uh, but I think we need even more bold action and even more, you know, work towards these ambitious goals um, by individuals, by organizations, by our governments. And so I'm, I'm certainly very hopeful. And a part of it definitely comes from, you know, where that quote is coming from. That it, it, We really just have this incredibly small window of opportunity to impact change and reduce the amount of, of suffering and biodiversity loss on this planet. And so ambition is, is definitely needed. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in terms of the way that things have gone, and we, we have an awful lot of fear based talk about climate change, and it's so nice to be able to start to shine a light on say, you know, this is a hopeful um, opportunity that, that there does need to be hope within it. And not just hope, but actually understanding because people can be very detached when it's just based on fear. And it's, it's very outside of you. And it's very um, difficult to take action on that. Whereas if people can understand where the solutions coming from, then I think that is very powerful with regards to hope. And when you talked about the figures earlier, I'm going to bring bring that back again, you said a billion tons of carbon dioxide removal per year. And then you said that the ambition or the minimum requirement that we have set out is 15 billion tons per year. Um, am I right in quoting that? It depends on who you talk to and which models but you're looking at. But yes, roughly 15 billion tons. And of course, I will say that that is dependent on how we, how rapidly we decarbonize our economy. Right. That was exactly what I was going to ask. Is that taking into account? And where where do you feel we need to be at? Do you feel that we need to um, be taking a good chunk of that by simply 
not putting the carbon dioxide out there. Absolutely. We we need to move as fast as we possibly can to decarbonize our economies. And unfortunately, it's no longer enough to just decarbonize our economies. Even if we stopped emitting everything tomorrow and we return to pre-industrial levels, it wouldn't be enough. We still have trillions of tons of excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that are warming our planet. And so it's it's just not an option for us to not do carbon removal anymore. There's a, a great sort of um, metaphor that has been used many times before, but I think it's it's helpful, which is uh, the the metaphor of a bathtub. So you can imagine that you wake up in the morning and you go and you turn the tap on the bathtub and you leave and go make a cup of coffee or something. You come back and the bathtub is overflowing. There's water everywhere. There's a mess all over. It's seeping through the, the floor. Your downstairs neighbors are getting wet. It's bad. It's a bad situation. And in order to fix that situation, you're not just going to turn off the tap, right? If, if you, if you, or sorry, you're not just going to, if you just turn off the tap, it doesn't empty the bathtub, right? You still have a very full bathtub. And so the only way that we can empty the bathtub is to unplug the plug. And right now you can kind of think of the atmosphere as that overflowing bathtub, but instead of water, we have carbon dioxide overflowing, completely saturated in the atmosphere. And it's not enough to just stop emitting or to turn off the tap. We have to unplug the plug and put some of that carbon dioxide back where it belongs. And so you can also think of the way in which, you know, carbon was stored in geologic uh, storage for millions of years. And then we took that carbon that was stored for millions of years and pumped it up into the atmosphere over the course of, you know, a little over a century. And that is that is not natural. Um, that is that is definitely a, a rebalancing that we need to do. So to answer your question, yes, 100%, we must decarbonize our economy and move to a world that isn't based on fossil fuels. Um, and we, we need to also really rapidly scale up carbon removal. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the more, I think, promising um, solutions that are very much harmonized with nature, which I really like. I like that aspect of it. And um, with regards to your ambitions, how far um, along is the project to reaching that? Is it a, um, are you, you're in action with some samples at the moment and you're going to scale that up? Is that right? That's right. We've been doing laboratory studies and modeling work over the last two and a half years. This year we're doing mesocosm experiments, which is essentially a simulation of an earth system in small scale and some of our very first field deployments. Uh, permits pending, right? So this year we'll be doing very small scale deployments and then assuming that our results come back positive, kind of everything that I am about to say is assuming that our results come back positive. Um, we have a pretty, you know, a rapid scale up plan because it turns out that, you know, it's, it's really actually not a whole lot harder to deploy a million tons of sand than it is to do a thousand tons. And that's really just because you're really just moving bulk minerals around the world and applying for larger permits. And it's also a whole lot more cost effective to do it at large scale. So we will, where our main business model is through the sale of carbon credits. 
So over the course of the next, you know, five to 10 years, we, we intend to be able to get to that, that really large, massive global scale. Um, because again, it's, it's quite a simple scale up process. And of course, simple is including a lot of supply chain development and logistics expertise and all of that, but we're building partnerships today that can help enable that scale in the future. Yeah. So my understanding of what you've described and explained to me is it is very much a logistical project at heart because it's about taking materials that nature has provided, moving them, processing them, presumably to a very fine is, is it the fineness of the sand that is um, going to dictate the speed of the process? Partially, partially, yes. That's that's one of the things that we're we're experimenting with is how fine it needs to be, and then of course using the energy of the ocean to continue grinding the sand. It's a wonderful collaboration between what you said at the start, which is knowledge and information and research. That's actually did you say thirty years? That's right. Um, in the making, in the in the studying, so it it's bringing something um, to light there from that scientific study, and then actually combining that with the development that we've done logistically and mechanically over over the decades, also. And and yeah, it 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 sounds you know it sounds very doable <laughs> from what from what I can uh, understand that you're saying. And that's right. And- of course, I'm representing, I'm a co-founder and I'm representing a diverse team of individuals. We have an amazing staff um, that are working day in and day out to try and bring this solution into the world because it is a logistical challenge, but it's also quite a scientific effort and quite a technological effort to try and um, figure out how we measure, report, and verify on carbon removal and carbon removal rates. And so we have a team of eight PhD staff scientists, in-house coastal engineers, and amazing operators that are that are helping to, to bring this together, as well as diverse collaborators from around the world that we work with, universities, academic, different academic uh, institutions and foundations, um, research laboratories. And we are, yeah, we're so grateful for all of the work that we are building on kind of the, the, sto- the shoulders that we stand on, if you will. Yeah, it sounds like actually the the measuring side of it must be one of the biggest complications, um, as is the case with much of the, the carbon catcher, the actual validation. And you said that the business model is based heavily on be- finding a revenue through carbon credits. Is that something you're already doing? Are you already able to validate this? So there are there's um there's a model that exists that validates the olivine dissolution rate, but it doesn't take into account all of the additional variables of kind of the ocean, wave energy, all of that. And so what we're trying to do is create something that's far more precise and accurate than the existing models um, so that we can really accurately characterize it. And I often think about what we're trying to do as some of an analog to what I imagine what must have happened in forestry, when forestry was coming about and people were trying to figure out how to sell carbon credits on the basis of growing trees, you know, there were hundreds of millions of dollars, companies, organizations, governments that really came together to define, okay, what are the different variables that we need to measure? A tree of this type, in this climate, in this soil, with this large of a tree trunk and 
however many variables we bake in equals this much carbon capture over this much time. And right now there's nothing that exists for that in the field of ocean alkalinity enhancement. And we really are working to develop what are those variables that we can measure and how do we measure them? How do we bake them into an integrated model that creates a really clear picture of carbon capture over time so that we and others who want to deploy coastal carbon capture in the future can do so and can ultimately sell carbon credits on you know, international registries and help countries meet their climate commitments and all of that. Wonderful. So if uh, if anyone watching would like to learn more about the project, um, all of the information that we've discussed then is really just scratching the surface from a sort of scientific point of view. If people would like to learn more about what you're up to um, and all the rest of it, is is that all on your website? That's right. Yeah, our website has all that we've discussed and more. We have many scientific papers, kind of the basis of our of our original research and we're actually updating the site right now with some new information around our our research and some of the results of our research will come over the course of this next year um, so our website is vesta.earth and definitely um, come visit us there and feel free to if, you, if you're listening feel free to reach out and ask any questions we have uh, a great communications team that would love to chat with you Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been really enjoyable to speak to you and very educational too. And um, I wish you all the very best of luck, yourself and the team on the whole of the project. I hope that it all um, comes together and moves forward well. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to speak with you as well. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. We've covered so much in these interviews so far, and I'm delighted to say there's plenty more on the way. Next time, I'm going to do a bit of reflection on what we've learned and consider how, despite the diversity of voices and locations that we've heard from, there's some key, simple and actionable messages that connect them at the core. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.